0: so one of one of the mm, things that might be kind of revolving in your minds particularly as we get to the last evening of our retreat together is yeah how how do i sustain practice and how do i um sustain a clarity of intention you know especially when i leave a place like this and really um the whole world seems to, or most of the world, seems to be swimming in in an opposite direction. Uh, And mostly what we've been doing here is exploring the practice of mindfulness and of meditation, which is really absolutely central to uh, training the heart-mind to cultivating well-being. But there are lots of other supportive technologies in this process, and... um, supportive ways of of shaping if you like our consciousness shaping our intentions reminding ourselves of our intentions and and when we're struggling to do something that we really value but it's a bit difficult from the mainstream kind of bringing every every channel of resourcing that we can to it is really helpful so um when i started practice it was was in a monastery where we were surrounded by reminders so lots of statues like the buddha statue behind us and shrines on which we'd put candles and flowers and incense and um, practices of bowing so an etiquette of bowing which i see you know many of you also um, resonate with and adopt and this sense of actually reminding myself of what do I what, where do I want to put my my trust and, and my devotion and I find that really helpful you know as a kind of these gestures that we make that remind ourselves of what we value and many of you probably have or might find ways to create places and symbols and reminders at home that actually help you stay aligned with what really um, supports you what really nourishes your heart what you what you value and another practice that is you know very common in all many many spiritual traditions but also within Buddhism and the Dharma is the practice of chanting and these teachings were actually originally passed down orally and A lot of them are memorized as chants and they're various chants that have been used in Buddhist countries for centuries. And this this particular chant that I'd like to introduce tonight is a chant that we did a lot in the monastery, Amaravati, where I was a nun for eight years or so. and it's a translation from the Pali, which is the language of Theravada Buddhism, of early Buddhism, the Buddhism that's practiced in Thailand and Sri Lanka and Burma. And I know that this chant is regularly chanted in, throughout Thailand and throughout Burma, possibly in Sri Lanka as well, and in many different places where there are monasteries in this tradition in the West. And it's been chanted for hundreds of years. So one of the things about doing these chants or recitations is that I can align my intention, I can reflect on I'm not alone in this project. There are other people out there, maybe even chanting this chant right now, who share my aspirations in many different places and across many different periods of time as well. So that's one benefit that I find in it. It's also... Uh, another skillful way of bringing bringing these thoughts and these aspirations to mind it 's like embedding them in a different way, so we all have different ways that we learn and i've noticed how the things that i I learned and memorized as chants you know even twenty years ago how they might they might pop into my mind at really kind of unexpected times when actually they're extremely apposite. And so things go in and get digested in a different sort of way. And for some of us, this is a really helpful way of, of learning, of, of aligning the mind. And then we'd often do the chants um, before a period of meditation or during a, a period of meditation. And there's also something about the activity of chanting, of using the voice and resonating the body that is uh, soothing mm and calming, actually, and kind of um, switches us again to a different channel. It's helpful for getting out of the the cognitive space sometimes. Um, So that's another benefit. And then I think there's also something very powerful about giving voice to an aspiration or an intention collectively, that it's something we do together. Uh, There's something about voicing our own aspirations that gives them a kind of reality, uh, a a power to them, and also to, to have the support of other people doing that. so we can you know you're welcome to participate in this or if you i I fess up to being somebody who got um, rejected for the school choir at the age of 10 and having been traumatized ever since this is a very simple chant Um, so you'll notice that above and below the words there are arrows that point up and down so it's basically on three notes and it's sort of the middle pitch and then it goes down one where there's an arrow underneath and up one where there's an arrow above. And it's not terribly musically challenging. And it also doesn't matter if we don't all blend together perfectly. So I encourage you not not to be shy about joining in. I'm thinking that we can do it once in call and response and then we can do it together uh, when you've got the hang of it. And if you'd rather just listen, that's completely fine too. You can participate by listening. And then after we've done that, then uh, Yanai and I will share some reflections on the, the content of the chant. So this is Amravati Sangha chant. Sangha is community. And it's one of the things that bonds us together as a community is doing... Uh, activities like this, practices together like this. So I'll chant the thi- the line where it says leader, just to give you a sense of the, the pitch. And then um, we'll do it call and response the first time and we'll see how it goes. Okay. Now let us chant the reflections on universal well-being. May I abide in well-being, may I abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety, in freedom from anxiety, and may I maintain well-being in myself, and may I maintain well-being in myself, may we all abide in well-being, May we all abide in well-being in freedom from hostility, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from ill will, in freedom from anxiety, in freedom from anxiety, and may we maintain well-being in ourselves and may we maintain well-being in ourselves may we all be released from all suffering may we all be released from all suffering and may we not be parted from the good fortune we have attained and may we not be parted from the good fortune we have attained when we act upon intention when we act upon intention we are the owners of our action We are the owners of our action and inherit its results, and inherit its results. Our future is born from such action, our future is born from such action, companion to such action, companion to such action, and its results will be her home and its results will be her home all actions with intention all actions with intention be they skillful or harmful be they skillful or harmful of such acts we will be the heirs of such acts, we will be the heirs. Good job! (laughs) So let's just do it through together now without the call and response. Now let us chant the Reflections on Universal Well-Being May I abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility, in freedom from ill-will, in freedom from anxiety, and may I maintain well-being in myself. May we all abide in well-being in freedom from hostility in freedom from ill-will in freedom from anxiety and may we maintain well-being in ourselves May we all be released from all suffering and may we not be parted from the good fortune we have attained when we act upon intention we are the owners of our action and inherit its results our future is born from such action companion to such action, and its results will be a home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts we will be the heirs. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. So this chant on universal well-being is actually a a chant on the four, um, what are known as the four Brahma Viharas or sublime abidings of the heart. Brahma is the highest of the heavenly realms inhabited by the gods the beings who abide in bliss in the bo- Buddhist cosmology and vihara means the dwelling place so it's the kind of the the dwelling place of go- the gods or heaven is the abiding in these in these qualities actually it's really the the expression of the heart that is uh, unbounded, uncramped, unobstructed, uh, so I used to having been brought up in a kind of Christian school and taught about heaven and things, I used to get into this real head spin trying to work out well what what situation would i if i would I want to spend eternity in, and I could never quite figure it out, and it 's like actually, what 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 's the best dwelling place for the human heart where is one happiest and actually it's not about is it about you know heaven is a place where you live in a nice house or have a nice swimming pool or you know your favorite friends all around you all the time it's actually when the heart is happy joyful and loving that in itself is an experience of of heaven and this is kind of the pointing us to actually Mm. Where is where is there a safe refuge or a happy abide a happy abiding place for this heart and mind? So it's not about somewhere that's you know for a future life or something. So what's the state of the state of heaven within a human life? And so these these four qualities are really facets of of the same thing. They're facets of the loving heart. First of all, um, it's basic essence of friendliness or goodwill, which is metta or loving kindness. And this is what the first uh, couple of verses are really talking about. So, may I abide in well-being, in freedom from affliction, in freedom from hostility and ill will, in freedom from anxiety and maintain well-being. And it's interesting that uh, love or metta is actually as much just an absence of ill will or hostility. If if hostility and ill will are absence, there's a natural joyfulness and availability to the heart. And I don't know if you notice that in yourselves. You know, time when the heart is peaceful and happy, its natural response is friendliness. You see another person or another creature and there's a kind of oh. You know, so it's almost not something that we have to create. It's something that's there underneath the, the kind of layers of obstruction that we fall into. And I think it's also interesting that uh, a being in a heavenly space is actually the freedom from hostility and ill will. It's not primarily talking about, may I be free from... Um, receiving those on the outside it's actually the freedom of this heart here from the experience of hostility and ill will because that's where the most intense suffering is is when we're locked in that kind of experience and at the same time though when we're we're free from those there's a there's a protective quality to loving kindness so there's there are places where the benefits of loving kindness are enumerated, and it's said that actually it makes you dear to other beings, to dear to human beings and to non-human beings, and actually it keeps us in a place of safety. So of course we can't guarantee that, but isn't it likely that we're more likely to be met with friendliness and a friendly response if that's what uh, we're manifesting ourselves. It's also said that you'll sleep easily and dream good dreams sleep easily wake easily dream beautiful dreams and that you'll look beautiful <laughs> so this isn't the kind of beauty that you see on a fashion magazine but it's also you know friendly people are attractive to us aren't they and if we're friendly we're attractive to other people and this kind of cycle of um yeah cycle cycle of uh, well-being um starts to ensue and so it starts off wishing this for ourselves, wishing the quality of loving kindness for ourselves, And then it's, it continues, may we all abide in well-being. So we're wishing that for others. And actually, this is a slightly tweaked version of the, the normal Amaravati translation, which says, may everyone abide in well-being. This is Yanai's tweak on it, which I really like. It's actually rather than everyone, because everyone can apply, imply everybody out there this is our reminder. Oh, yeah, everyone includes me. Uh, so this is wishing every, uh, ourself and all other beings to abide in metta, in the state of friendliness and goodwill. And then the third paragraph down is, actually contains the next two Brahma-viharas. May we all be released from all suffering is an aspiration to compassion both for ourselves and for others, and it's interesting how this aspiration that we all be free from suffering it doesn't kind of specify are we talking about past, present, or future suffering um, as when 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 teachings get really comprehensive, they often refer to things in past, present, and future, and I think it's quite helpful to think of it in this way it's like. We aspire to um, free up the suffering that's here at the moment, but also to bring to mind, you know, what are we doing that might cause suffering in the future for ourselves and for one another? That's all contained in this very simple, um, short phrase. And then, may we not be parted from the good fortune we have attained. This is really important. This is the quality of mudita or spiritual, sometimes altruistic joy or sympathetic joy. That what happens with the heart when the heart's feeling happy and light and it sees or encounters happiness in another being or in ourselves, it resonates with that happiness and it's glad about it. So it's the opposite of uh, taking delight in the in the misfortune of others you know we can sometimes find ourselves doing people that we have a quarrel with or that we dislike or it's the way that the, the media likes to tear down the successful doesn't it we you know we kind of set people up on a pedestal and then actually they have too much and so we start kind of finding ways to pick fault with them we can get very stingy in our allowing of joy to other people especially when we think that there isn't enough to go round. Yeah, this is a real kind of um, trick that the mind plays on us. Sometimes if we're feeling kind of um, deprived or um, yeah, you know, um, lacking in some way and we see other people enjoying happiness or success, it can feel kind of quite threatening because the mind thinks, well, there's not enough happiness to go around. Actually, if we develop this capacity to be happy about other people's happiness, there's an infinite supply of happiness that's possible. So the Dalai Lama talks about there being 7 billion opportunities for happiness on this planet if we learn to resonate uh, with the happy experiences of others. And... Often this is taught as altruistic joy, that it's not about me. It's about me taking delight in your happiness. But again, that overlooks the fact that this is all-inclusive. It it includes ourselves as well. So actually, mudita is a quality it's really important to have for oneself, to actually develop a capacity to recognize, acknowledge, own and enjoy the blessings and the and the happiness that's available in our own life and I've noticed in, in myself and I don't think I'm unique in this a pattern of kind of almost this I don't deserve it or I don't, you know I think somehow it, things will get taken away from me I can't, this ability to actually really receive savour and enjoy the blessings of my life it takes a little bit of of work, of intentionality, sometimes, uh, and it's different from getting lost in it or uh, getting kind of high on happiness. It's a really um, a kind of uh, uh, an ownership with perspective of oh yeah, this is this is good, this is joyful, and we know that it it changes, things change. It's the ability to You know, kiss the joys of life as they fly, for ourselves and for one another. And that actually also then feeds into the last and the most substantial paragraph here, which is actually about equanimity. And it talks about our acting upon intention. And this is the whole concept of karma, of the way that we live in a cause and effect universe and our intentional actions come back to us sooner or later. You know, sometimes it's not easy to see this, you know, it doesn't immediately look like we or other people are reaping the fruits of our, act- of our actions. But actually we're taught that wherever we sow an intention in some way, that's there in the mind stream and will come back to us. Uh, and we can see this at playing out you know even within the scope of um what we can see within our life you know so one of the things that uh, gets confusing about the teaching of karma is the sense of well you know um of people you hear sort of People say, oh, well, you know, these people who are, we have X, Y or Z misfortune, it must be our karma or it's their karma. And it can turn into a sort of blame game. But actually, um, the Buddha also pointed out that although our intentions um, have an effect on what unfolds, there are also many, many things, many factors that are far beyond our control that actually um create the circumstances we find ourselves in and that other people find themselves in. So it's not to use karma as a way of kind of either evading responsibility, because it's a teaching about responsibility, an invitation to reflect on personal responsibility, but also to, to recognize that there are many, many aspects of life, of our lives and of everyone's lives that are beyond our control. And this is really important in the practice of of compassion and loving kindness because so often we're doing it or we can, in doing it, we can become really invested in, I want to create this outcome and particularly I want to help manage the happiness levels of the people whose happiness impacts mine. So our families or our partners or our close friends or our, our children. And so this is really an invitation to, equanimity is also an ability to kind of pull back and have a perspective, an overview to take, if you like, the long view and recognize that we can want the best for somebody, but actually just as we are ultimately involved in kind of responsible for what goes on in our own minds So each of us we have to allow that autonomy and responsibility to one another and we can't actually control um you know what somebody does with their mind and with their life and it's not to blame them because we're all the products of conditions but we can't well however much we may wish that we can't um guarantee or cause or, um, or bring about on our own the happiness of another person and so that's really important to balance that quality of compassion that wants to help um, and so there are reflections we can make like this one or the, you know things that we can say to ourselves or internally like recognizing oh you know, I may want the best for you but you're you're on your own life's path or i can't control your happiness to remind ourselves of that and kuan yin this the bodhisattva of compassion this archetype of compassion is kuan yin is her chinese name and it's one who listens to the sounds of the world or to the cries of the world and a fuller um form of her name is the one who listens to the cries of the world at ease. She's able to listen to the cries of the world and respond because she also has this wisdom quality of equanimity. Yeah. She She recognises ultimately the cause and effect, empty nature of things, and that actually gives her the power to respond and the balance to respond. So this reflection really um, yeah, is that, that equanimity in some ways is the, is the thing that helps enable all the other Brahma-viharas to, to exist. It keeps them in balance. And not to think that equanimity is somehow... You know, it can sound like a, a, a rather cool quality or cold quality. It maybe it has a cool maybe a coolness to it, but it's not a coldness. It's still a quality of connection of a heart that's connected to experience. I think there's maybe more I could say, but I also would like to give Yana some space to share some reflections on these. So. Good. Mm.
1: So I was just uh, really enjoying listening to Jaya and thinking oh maybe she'll keep going to 8.30 <laughs> and uh, it's not too late, <laughs> but uh, I'm also happy to have some chance to offer some reflections here. I was very happy when uh, we talked and came to the the sense that we'd like to share this, this chant because there's so much in it. and uh, this piece of the uh, that Jaya was just speaking about with regard to equanimity and understanding that our deeper happiness is really born out of our relationship to action, about how we engage inwardly and outwardly. Thoughts, words and deeds are all part of the realm of action in, um, in the Buddha's teaching. And in some ways the whole practice is founded on or based on the, the understanding that because our happiness depends upon how we are in the world and how we are in the world depends on our intentional actions, which we're not always conscious of what our intentions are for. So we're not always conscious of our intention. We're not always conscious of the effect of our actions. So the whole training in becoming more conscious, mindful and awake is to enable us to make choices in the realm of action that actually lead to happiness, that actually lead to well-being. And so while at one level this teaching speaks about the way in which we can, in a way, acknowledge our limited ability to determine outcomes, and therefore we have to make peace with how things are, it also acknowledges the degree to which we do have an influence and can impact outcomes and outcomes for ourselves and others by seeking to align our actions with the wholesome intentions of, of non- greed of non-hatred and of non-delusion which are the non- cruelty which are the kind of the fundamental basis for skillful action and uh, I think it's it's useful and interesting it's not talking about things we have to kind of positively do it's things that we more need to try and avoid acting out of places of what we call greed which is in a way where we find ourselves disregarding the impact on others out of some sense of need to fulfill our own needs or where there's uh, a way in which we again don't quite acknowledge the impact on others because we're trying to take care of ourselves and in both those situations it's I think it's really important this sense of not blaming of not judging because we can see that where we do things like that and certainly when i look at my own life and look at myself i see that the times where i have caused harm and there are plenty it seems and it's kind of it's an important thing to acknowledge yeah we i we it seems do thi- do things that we may later regret but to see it comes out of an attempt to take care of ourselves i find this compelling and reliably so it may not seem immediately obvious when looking at oneself or others But in the end, I think it is true. And this is certainly what I see when I examine myself carefully. And therefore, rather than kind of needing to blame oneself or another for that, it's more like saying, oh, actually, well, doing these things to try and advance my well-being that actually don't successfully do so, it's not about blaming. It's about saying, actually, I'd like to change that way of behaving. I need to be conscious of it before I can. Sometimes being conscious of it and not yet knowing how to change it is a particularly difficult place to be, a place we come to in practice where we can see what we're doing, but we can't yet see how to bring about a new way of being. Sometimes that takes some real patience and some real kindness with ourselves just to pause in that place. And if we're willing to look and see, we'll start to understand why it is we might behave in ways that aren't skillful or helpful, and what it is that we either get from or think we might get from doing it. It's like if we're really um, critical and self-judgmental towards ourselves, it's a really common thing for many of us. When we look at it, it seems like it's just really painful and it's really horrible and it's like, why on earth would we do that to ourselves? And yet if I if I look into the pattern for myself and in many conversations with other people it seems to be similar, it's like that that kind of judging and blaming oneself is it's like I'm trying to coerce myself into not doing things that I think are going to cause me trouble or get me into trouble with other people or get me cause me subject to being subject to pain. And the irony is that of course it's actually way more painful all that self judgment than what would happen most of the time if I did those things. So it, it sort of seems to make sense it doesn't help. And yet the patternings in judgment and those reactive patternings are so strong for us. So we, you know, we talk about the use of loving kindness and compassion as ways of learning to hold and handle those reactive patterns of judging, of blaming, of attacking. And yet understanding that their intention is to try and protect us. They don't succeed at it. Does that make sense? you hear that, it's like I'm trying to protect myself from getting myself into trouble and getting beaten up by beating myself up so I won't do it. It's like I've already lost. I've already got beaten up by myself. It doesn't matter whether someone else ends up beating me up here for this, you know, figuratively speaking, obviously, um, in terms of the beating up. Um... And so there's this this place that we sometimes need to find in ourselves where we can start to stand up to those forces and say, actually, this isn't skillful, this isn't helpful. This is something that needs to be brought to a close or an end in some way, even though I may not yet know how to do so. And so... Starting from a place of not blaming ourselves or another for the way things are and yet recognizing that we do need to take responsibility for how we live and what we do and what we don't do in life. That we need this for our happiness and well-being and our world needs this for its well-being and its sustainability. That we individually and collectively take responsibility for how we live and how we are and how we act and what choices we make to do that out of a deep sense of caring for our well-being and for the well-being of everything around us. This is really the call I think at the heart of spiritual practice. It's not about beliefs. It's not about meditative technology. In the end it's about living our life in alignment with that sense of care and connection that we've touched upon in I think some of the previous evenings. And so with that, there's a lot of force, there's a lot of power we encounter when we see anger and aggression in the world and when we see it in ourselves. It's a powerful force. It's sufficiently compelling that many people employ it as the means for getting things done and the belief that it really serves us. But mostly we see that anger and aggression leads to more anger and aggression, whether internally or externally expressed. And so compassion is, one of the, is the primary response to, to the fact of there being suffering, difficulty, pain in, in life, in the world, in ourselves. Compassion is often understood and related to as a kind of a soft, sweet, healing, tender quality, sometimes associated with this, the sense of resonating with, of vibrating with suffering. And there's something very beautiful in that, something very sweet that we kind of, I think, naturally and appropriately understand compassion to be, and accurately understand compassion to be. So where there is suffering, the healing of suffering, that's already happening or happened, often requires that really tender, soothing, sweet, kindly capacity to be brought forth, where we're willing to feel and be touched and resonate with, and respond from that sensitivity of heart where we're not turning away, we're not disconnecting, we're not numbing or distracting ourselves from the the reality of what it is to have a sensitive human heart, to be aware of suffering in the life of someone we care about, in our own life, or in the lives around us and the world that we are within and a part of. And so that quality of compassion is perhaps quite a familiar one to us. It doesn't mean we necessarily always have access to it, but we think about compassion in those terms, I think, many of us. And yet there's another element of compassion which is equally important, not more so, but perhaps is not so obvious or apparent in when we think and talk about compassion. And it's the quality of compassion that is kind of protective against harm that hasn't yet happened, or harm that is ongoing and therefore continuing to be done. So it's not so much about healing the harm that has taken place, but about protecting against and preventing harm that could be prevented from happening, that doesn't need to happen. Out of compassion, out of the wish for oneself or others, beings, the world, not to be subject to that harm. And this has a different quality to it. It it has a certain kind of fierceness to it, or it can have. And I don't know if you've ever um, seen sort of those in, in Asia, and also sometimes in the West, that sort of temples and monasteries in the Buddhist tradition, if you go to them often at the gates to the monastery or the door at the entrance to the temple, you see these fierce-looking creatures with teeth and fangs and glaring eyes, and they really don't look like they're doing loving-kindness practice. It's just not the feeling you get from them. And yet what they're doing is they're embodying a protective quality that's saying, we will protect Fiercely, that which is precious, that which is beautiful, that which is important. And this is a quality that it's also important for us to understand and embody. So this this quality of... Stopped working, as it? it back? I shouldn't touch that thing really. This quality of fierce compassion that doesn't necessarily hold back from looking like it might be scary even though it's actually coming from a place of connection That the, the image that's used in the, in, the, in the teaching which I find very beautiful it's, it classically talks about a mother but I want to say someone who's a parent because people can be in a mothering role in many different situations But so, so a parent standing at the door of the room in which their child is, sleeping. And someone is coming towards the room wishing to hurt the child. And we can just perhaps imagine the response of the parent as someone is coming to the room wishing to hurt the child, and how is that parent going to respond? Quite naturally and quite, I would say, fully if not fiercely, no, you're not coming through that door. It's nothing personal but you're not coming through that door. And the, the response that when I feel into what that's like, it's like this. No! Stop! And interestingly as I do this, I'd just like to invite you to take a moment just to feel yourself sitting. Contact with the ground. And with whichever hand you might do this, do this with your hand. Bring your fingers together. Feel what it's like to sit upright. Put it in front of you. So it's sort of in front of your torso. Just take a moment. What does it feel like when you do that? Has anyone got a word they might say that st- they feel, that it looks like, that it associates with them for, or anything it evokes for you? S- call out. Strength. Strong. Stop. Barrier. Space. Protection. Protection. Mirror. Mirror. Take a moment and notice what your hand feels like, what your arm feels like, what the shoulder feels like. Power. <coughs> it's interesting, isn't it? Sorry, was there another? Strength, yeah. Honesty. Yeah, You can play with a little, just see what it's like to flex the inside of the palm, open it it's connected to the lower back and the arch in the lower back, the, the small of the back, which is actually all about the support of the body and its uprightness. And I find when I just flex the palm a little bit, it firms up in the lower back. This isn't something I read somewhere. This is something I found out. So if it's, diff- if it's different for you, go with what your experience is. But that's what it seems like to me. It's actually something you'll... And you're welcome to leave your hand there if you like, or put it down if you wish. But this is something you'll occasionally see. It's not the most common, but you'll sometimes see the the Buddha with this mudra, we call it. Mudra is like a, a shape or a gesture of posture. So, you know, the Buddha up here is touching the earth, which is a mudra from the time when he reached down to touch the earth, to call the earth to bear witness for his practice in the night of his awakening. This is called the fearless mudra, abaya, fearless mudra. It's the soft part of the hand. It's not aggressive, but it's firm, it's strong, it can say no, or stop, or if necessary, back off. And it creates space here. It provides protection here. And these are things that, without ever having been talked about, it seems people notice quite immediately when doing it, or seeing it. And of course it's universal and you know traffic officers around the world when facing a line of traffic they don't do this or this or this or this. They just do this. And we know what it means. Stop. No. And so fearless I think needs to be understood. That's the classical translation of Abaya. Abaya mudra. Fearless doesn't mean an absence of fear necessarily so I would also equally call this the courageous mudra presenting the soft part of the hand so it's not aggressive it's not like the knuckles and you know I'm gonna scare you off I'm gonna but I will say stop if you don't stop but courage is that capacity to act in alignment with what we feel to be most true even if we might feel there is some fear or danger for us in it and just as a parent standing in a door Again, not every parent manages to be the perfect parent and if one's own parenting experience either as a parent or with one's own parent wasn't quite perfectly this, I'm not suggesting that's an aberration, it's just how it is. But in terms of the archetype, that that parent will risk harm to themselves to protect their child and it's something that one sees in many situations. That quality of in a way putting the need of another first because one takes responsibility for their well-being that quality can have quite a a fierceness and a firmness to it and it's one of the qualities we need to bring into our practice at times it's a really useful quality if we're finding that strong self-critical self-judgmental self attacking energy arising sometimes actually Rather than getting into, oh, I'll just note it, I'll be mindful of it, I'll sort of accept it, sometimes that's not so useful. Sometimes what we need to do is actually turn directly towards it and say, no, that's not helpful, to that place that arises. Not So it's not it's bad or it's wrong, it's not judging, it's just, no, it's not helpful. And the image I find with this that's useful is, as if, um, I was sharing this with someone earlier, as if a we, we were in a supermarket, and there's a, there's a parent with a, a child who's just ripped open a packet of biscuits after walking past about 5,000 packets. And um, the parent is really angry with the child and yelling at them, saying, you really stupid, bad, naughty child, da-da-da. And one may or may not actually feel it's okay to engage with that conversation. But I know for myself, I would wish to say, actually, actually, no, that's not helpful. Just stop. Don't yell at them. I can see they shouldn't have done that, but it's probably not really their fault here, given what's going on. And that sense of wanting to intervene where there's this angry attempt to redress something that the anger isn't going to help. Stop. That's not helpful. That's actually a way in which the energy that's in that self-attacking, self-judgmental, self-critical mode can be, in a way transmuted or reclaimed because it's trying to protect us by in a way threatening us enough to stop us doing the thing that it thinks will get us into trouble as I said before and so that, that energy is actually a protective energy that's been distorted through fear and the reclaiming of it comes in actually taking it up as no stop pause and sometimes that making of a boundary and then what goes with that? and I'll just uh, offer this other mudra now and you can try this you might want to put your hand here again you don't have to the other hand if you just place it forward hold it pretty much straight forward and then just relax the wrist so it drops and see how that is just you're holding it forward and then you just relax the wrist so it drops and again just take a moment and notice what that feels like feel the hand So it's a cupped hand and just sort of held, released at the wrist. What do you feel in that? Again, just notice it, feel it. You don't have to use the other hand at this point, but you can. What does that feel like for anyone? Do you notice anything? Anything it expresses? Offering? Receiving? Yielding? Comfort? Open-hearted. Interesting, yeah? Sorry, I didn't... Holding? Holding? Plentiful? Yeah, can be. So, possibility? Yeah. So, there's many things in this one. It's not quite as immediately clear. And all of those things are true, I think, and many more. But there is also very clearly a sense, I find, of a connection to the heart. That there's an offering, and I feel it particularly in the center of the palm, that, that has the sense of connecting outwardly that actually this is a meta-mudra. This This is actually an extending of kindness, which is in many of the things that people described or related to the words that, and literally was the word that one person found for it. So what's interesting is sometimes actually having that sense of making a boundary and saying stop and knowing that there's a safety here where I will hold a line is what allows us to keep the heart open, allows us to stay in a place where I might be willing to confront something that's harmful, threatening or dangerous and can keep my heart open in doing so. And this is one of the most important things I think that we are called to learn in life. To keep our heart open when we engage to bring about change in our inner life and equally in the world. If we try and change things out of judgment of them the very force of judgment and the, the energy in there, which is essentially aversive, reactive, and occasionally aggressive, tends to distort the whole process and make it eventually unhelpful. So we can't really transform ourselves by being mean to ourselves. It just doesn't work. We can't really transform anyone else or the world by judging them and putting pressure on them through that. This this relates to me very much to, and I just want to pick this up briefly. What I spoke a little bit about a couple of nights ago, in the in the work of uh, engaging with the reality of our world, in which as a human community our our trajectory is one of profound self harm, profound undermining of the well being of our ecology, and it's something that there's patterns of addictivity and compulsivity within it that mean it doesn't make sense to blame anybody for what's happening. It's a systemic issue. And yet it does require response. If the response comes from judgment, it tends to not work. If it comes from love, it's remarkably powerful. And so one of the things I've come to understand in recent times, and this is really just the last six months where my life has been a a weaving together of my dharma practice and engagement in a, in a form of activism that uh, is simply described as non-violent civil disobedience—a willing to, a willingness to. In an open-hearted way, challenge established patterns and systems. One of the things I've come to understand that is that. Although I learned about this in the context of the Extinction Rebellion movement, which I I, I mentioned a couple of nights ago, and again I think many of you will be familiar with, and that's been where I've been doing most of my practice for the last six months. Um, And what I came to understand through it is that in fact meditation practice is precisely non-violent civil disobedience applied internally. So we need to start from a place of non-violence, of non-judging, of open-heartedness, which we've talked about. And at the same time acknowledging that there's certain patterns and habits we have that aren't leading to our happiness. Sometimes the fears that tell us you can't do the thing that you know is actually what your truth asks you to do. And to be willing to disobey the injunctions of those fears or those compulsions that say you've got to do that, when you know it actually won't lead to happiness. To actually be able to disobey the internal compulsions and injunctions is the basis of freedom. And this is what the Buddha's teaching points to. To free ourself internally but equally to free our world externally. The injunctions that say you must keep on consuming more. We're surrounded by that message. The truth is, if we do it, if we continue to do that, our world won't survive. It's already not surviving. We've not only got to not consume more, we've got to actively consume le- less. Or, or we'll eat the very fabric we're living on. And then we'll have nothing left to eat. If we toxicify the environment that we breathe we'll have nothing left to breathe if we don't address the increasing temperature of our our climate it will cease to be one that can sustain life as it does now these are simple truths that require a response and so when we hear the, the teaching that you know we are the owners of our action, our actions will be our home. It's like, literally, the way we have collectively and the way we do collectively act will be the home we live in. And the degree to which it's a home that's habitable for us will depend on how we engage with, and I'm not just meaning personally, but collectively, our world. So that inner capacity to see okay, what actually leads to deeper well-being and happiness. It's not having more for me. We know this. We know this and still and I too sometimes get caught in believing it. And so it requires courage and it requires a collective and communal response where we support ourselves and we support each other. And so that, that sense of where a movement might choose to go out on the street and say, we're going to actually disrupt things happening as normal, because that's how we get attention. That's how we bring a collective attention to the fact that oh, there's something here that needs to be changed, that needs to be addressed, that needs a willingness on our part to take pathways that aren't easy or comfortable, because we understand that a failure to do so will lead to something way more difficult and way more uncomfortable. That's why we might choose to do things. That's why we choose to sit on a cushion when our knees hurt. Because we realize at some level, if I keep moving away from everything uncomfortable, my life gets, is actually much more painful. If we can't learn to make peace with places of discomfort, our world gets really small because there's very pl- few places that don't have them. And likewise, if we if we just go along with the momentum of the conditioned and reactive mind, it doesn't take us where it promises us. And a culture built on the amplification of of greed and on the In a way, the supporting of that way in which hatred shows itself is the disregard for, the uncaring about the effect on, or the giving of no value to groups of people or places or aspects and expressions of life. Saying, those don't really matter to me. This is an expression of hatred, of actually having disconnected and disregarded. So far as we allow our life, to be part of a culture and a community that's enacting that it is for our deep pain ultimately and suffering and sorrow there's a there's a concept that i encountered recently that uh, speaks to this because what we're involved in really is a a crisis of the spirit it seems to me where the the push for material advantage has overwhelmed the wisdom of our community in many aspects. It's not that it's gone but it's become overwhelmed and it needs to reassert itself. That our true happiness we know doesn't come from material advantage. And that if we continue to go in the way we're going then at some point we'll look back and realize, oh my gosh, what did we do there's a there's a concept called I encountered recently called moral injury it's very interesting it's the term that's described to what happens to someone for instance who causes serious harm or death to somebody else in an accident in a vehicle a car driver someone does something the other person dies it's not their fault but it's a deeply grievous thing that happens to them that they took this life even unintending even not at fault and so much more so if they made some mistake that led to it as a as a human community i think we are currently subject to the risk of profound moral injury as a species given that we now know what's happening we can't say oh i didn't realize that i didn't know that driving a car 80 miles an hour down a high street full of children might cause an accident um of course the that's a bit of an extreme example, but maybe not, because in some ways that's some of the way our, our society and culture is continuing to operate. Let's go faster here. Let's get more. And so this, this quality of fierce compassion is actually called for in ourselves and in our community to actually stand up and say, for whatever we feel is true and right in life, I wish to stand up for this. I wish to make my life concerned with supporting this. And it's not about outcomes. It's not that we can determine what will be the outcome of any situation. But one thing I think is very clear to me is that If we don't, if I don't, and I've seen this in my life many times, if I don't do what I can, then something in me aches as a result of that. If I do what I can, even if it doesn't work out as I hoped, there's a place of peace and ease around having just done what one could. Outcomes are never guaranteed. But the alignment and orientation of our heart and how we choose to live our life from that This is something of immense significance and as an act of self-compassion. Understanding the suffering that will ensue if we don't do this for ourselves, let alone for others in the world, but for ourselves. If we don't actually do what we can to contribute to the well-being of the world. In whatever way that may be true or meaningful or possible for us. And I'm not having some particular idea of how that has to look. But if we don't do that, there is a, a deep injury to ourself that we risk. And out of self-compassion, out of deep wish for our own well-being, equally as the well-being of others, finding the way in your life and our life to bring forth that courage that will act, that will speak, that will stand and say, this is what I care about, this is what I love, this is what's most important. And meditation is a great support for that, a great resource to stay close to one's heart. A training in being able to put up with a little discomfort or quite a lot on occasion, which is sometimes what's required if we're going to be true to ourselves. Understanding that the deeper discomfort is if we don't do that. The deeper pain is if we fail in that endeavor to be true and aligned. So these qualities of courage, courageous hearts, courageous action and, and self-compassion are very closely connected. Caring for ourselves and our world is actually in inevitably the same process. And I think I've spoke for longer than I thought I was going to, so I'm I think going to draw it to a close there. Can we chant one more time? Or I feel like I'd like to. Are you all right to? Take a moment to stretch if you need to stretch your legs or move your body if it's a bit sore. Um, it's the problem. when We both speak. I, I thought this, this will happen. I, I can never speak for less than half an hour, and I was right, but there we are. And I'll turn my microphone off at this point. For those of well, you, my chanting voice, you'll understand why.
0: Well, uh, if I turn my microphone off, maybe you'll all hear, hear yourselves as well. Can we do that, yeah. Okay. So I'll just I'll just chant in the first line, and then we can all we can all kick off. So. <coughs> now let us chant the reflections on universal well-being may i abide in well-being
1: thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed